Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. On today's show, internet privacy. Ever wonder why you can use sites like Facebook and Google and Gmail and get all these services for free? Well, you've probably thought about it, and it's because of your data. Uh, When you use those services, uh, advertisers are able to target you. And contrary to some hysteria around this issue, they're not actually selling your data. Uh, When you use a service like Facebook and Google, they're selling advertisements that are targeted at you based on your preferences and things about you. Um, But there's all sorts of anonymized practices, and we'll get into that later in the show. But the reason we're talking about this today is because last week, Representative Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee who chairs the Digital Commerce and Consumer Protection Subcommittee under the House Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, she introduced a bill called the Browser Act, and that's an acronym uh, that I'm not going to say because these acronyms are always silly and pointless. They just use them so that they can call bills things that somehow have to do with their subject matter. Um, But essentially, she's saying that consumers should have to opt in to this sort of thing. Right now, the internet ecosystem globally uh, in some ways, but especially in the United States, is based on opt-out. Essentially, you can opt out of the sort of data collection required for these services to work, but you don't necessarily have to opt in depending. Now, of course, consumer privacy is great, right? More privacy regulation, more rights, more consumer choice. Uh, How could this possibly be bad? Well, joining me to discuss the pros and cons of this bill is Baron Soka, president of Tech Freedom, and he's a big believer in privacy. Right, Baron? Uh, Thanks, Evan. Well, and it depends, right? The whole point here is the FTC for 20 years has been handling these issues, and their answer is usually it depends on things like context. So sometimes opt-ins make sense. So nobody wants your your broadband provider selling a list of all the websites you visit. They don't want Google selling that either, but that doesn't actually happen. The the sites that were set up this year that said, oh, you can get revenge on your congressman (laughs) who who voted for that Congressional Review Act resolution that disapproved that FCC order about uh, broadband privacy. Well, why don't you buy their broadband uh, browsing history? Well, it turns out you can't. And, and there's a reason for that, that there isn't a market for that. In part, it's because the Federal Trade Commission has already recognized that that's the kind of thing that should require opt-in from consumers. So this debate isn't really about opt-in versus opt-out. Everyone agrees that there's a right time for both. And also that for most of what we do, we don't want to be bothered with pop-ups at all, right? We just want the sites to work. The question's always, when do we need to, to, to have that opportunity to choose? And, and what should the default B. And this bill uh, tries to simplify it all down to just saying basically, well, there's sensitive information and that always requires uh, an opt-in. And then there's non-sensitive information and that shouldn't. And then there are some exceptions. And that sounds good on paper, but in practice, that approach breaks down pretty quickly. Of course, it sounds good on paper. I mean, you know, yes, people use the internet and yes, they use services and yes, they allow this sort of data collection to happen. But It's not necessarily the case that everyone loves this system and that people wouldn't necessarily want more control. And it is a complicated issue. And I bet if you were to poll Americans and say, do you want more control over your data? They'd say, yes, of course. Right. But there are some consequences here. And here's a comparison. You go over to Europe, um, which both of us have done, and you use the Internet and the same way you would use it in the United States. And every single website you go to without fail has a little message at the top that says we're collecting cookies, yada, yada, yada. And you you generally just say yes or you exit out. And does that really meaningfully add anything? I mean, is the consumer understanding what's happening? Or is that just an example of you add a layer of regulation to make people feel better, but it's not really educational. It's not really teaching you anything. Well, it's worse than that. It actually, it desensitizes you. So 
there's an entire field of research around privacy user experience, just as there are user experience people who design services and pick the right fonts and make sure they look good. There are people who think long and hard about how do we present choices to users so that they're actually not just uh, going through the motions, but actually making decisions that where the outcome reflects what they really want. Right? And, and if you just think about it, it should be pretty obvious that if you barrage someone with a choice every single time they have to go through something or at, at every website they go to, you will desensitize them. Now, that's the first effect, the unintended consequence of, of choice in general. But there's some particularly bad consequences for opt-in. So the, the, the next one, and this will sound counterintuitive, but it's also pretty obvious if you think about it, is opt-in mandates actually tend to result in the collection of more sensitive information from users, uh, depending on the site. And basically, it, here's how this shakes out. So some sites, let's say smaller sites, sites that you may not want to visit regularly that are outside an ad network or that are not part of some larger federation. Yeah, like Google and Facebook are pretty dominant in the exactly, ad market, so right? the small players don't really have a lot of market share. So, so Google and Facebook are not going to have a difficult time getting an opt-in. Because people want to use those services exactly. no matter what. Right. A smaller site that wants to just do things on its own, sell ads individually, et cetera, they're going to have a much harder time getting users to opt in, right? So that's that's the first effect. There's already, uh, ironically, even though people think that a bill like this would would hurt a company like Google or Facebook, like those are going to have an easier time dealing with the burden. And they don't like this. it, but it seems like there's there's some universal criticism here from small and big companies alike. And just because big companies are better able to deal with a regulation doesn't mean the regulation is good. Right. So, yeah. so we're, I want to make sure we get the effects clear. So first, there's the desensitization of choice in general. Like in Europe, yeah. Right? Second, there's the skewing of the market, because some companies have an easier time getting the opt-in than others. And then third, this is the, the, the really ironic consequence for privacy advocates. If you say, well, you have to get an opt-in for, for collecting information, and especially the broader the, the scope of information is that requires the opt-in, in other words, the more often that sites have to get it, well, they're just going to ask for everything else anyway. In other words, if you've got to present an opt-in to the user, you want to get everything all at once. So the kitchen sink approach says, well, heck, you know, uh, this information didn't used to be considered sensitive. Now it is. And so to run my business, I have to ask for an opt-in. And as long as I'm going to ask for that, I might as well start collecting other information that I didn't collect before that maybe I want to use in the future because it is really hard to get people to opt in. The, the rates at which people exercise choice really end up making these, these uh, default settings outcome determinative. Yeah, and just imagine if this bill were signed into law tomorrow, and that's not going to happen. There's going to be a big debate, and it hasn't even been voted on yet, so it's just been introduced. But just imagine, I mean, Google already has to deal with the European framework in Europe, which is a huge market. It's a bigger market than the United States, just the EU alone. They can kind of just do what they're doing over there and do it here. I mean, it wouldn't be as simple as flipping a switch, but it's certainly more simple than an American company that's just now having to deal with this. Imagine, you know, you've been operating under the 20 year framework. Maybe you started your business a year ago, two years ago. You only operate in the United States. You don't have that experience. It's going to be so much harder for you to do that. And part of this is trust, right? I mean, speaking me personally, I am much more likely to trust a company like Facebook or Google with data security, right? They're big companies, they have a lot of resources. They're much less likely to get hacked than just some small company that I don't know, I don't trust, I haven't used their service yet. And the fact that they have to get me to opt in might be a barrier to them getting customers. And we want more competition, we want more innovation, we want startups to succeed. 
And this bill, Baron, could it just have the effect of entrenching those companies that already play well, that already have market share, that already have the trust of their customer? Yeah, exactly. So opt-ins tend to push you towards a balkanization where you get large existing companies that are uh, ad platforms, that are social networks, that have whatever that source of information is, that are able to collect that and then have an advantage over everyone else. And so you have you know a single sign-on, right? Now, th- th- so th- th- there's another a perverse consequence here, which is this system, once you start pushing people towards those federated content networks, you also tend to push towards um, uh, uh, either having to pay for everything or or upselling. You make it easier, once you've got that, that interaction with the user, to start uh, monetizing content directly, not through advertising, but through um, collecting fees. Now, some people think that's a good thing. They think that we should have a market for that, and that that would be better than than um, driving these services based on data. But it, I don't think it's really the government's place to push the market to a point where that infrastructure gets set up. Because once you do that, once you've created that 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 need to get the user to opt in, the need to have some interaction makes it easier to say, "Well, give us your credit card. Here's the ad-free version." Some users will like that. Other users are not going to like the fact that that more and more content is is required to be paid for. And just two real-world examples so people can kind of get a concept here. DuckDuckGo is a search engine that exists to be different than Google. Essentially, they say, we're not doing the same thing as Google, so that's our value proposition. We don't track you. If you allow some companies to do opt-in and some to do opt-out, there's competition, and you can compete. And then people who are very privacy-conscious and sensitive can use those services. Snapchat. They thought about maybe doing a subscription service or doing some type of thing where they sell additional services to customers, but they did research and they realized people would not opt in. So rather than do that, they just said, we're going to sell advertising, targeted advertising to our customers because people don't want to pay for Snapchat. So it is truly a an interesting market distortion. And it seems like Representative Blackburn and the supporters of this bill, which include some companies, are just assuming that everyone will just adjust and it'll be fine. Well, yeah, there's a common assumption here that if we just treat data like property, and Marsha said this, right, she's contrasted the left's approach to privacy paternalism with what she calls a classical liberalism based in property rights. That framework sounds great, especially to free market people. Oh, of course, yeah. I control my data, it's mine. Right? Yeah. But it ends up breaking down in, in the real world because this is not like the rest of the economy where you, you make decisions um, about a, a limited number of things every day and the decisions have a, a relatively high cost and the cost of choice isn't really that important. Here, the cost of choice outweighs all those microtransactions you make. And so getting the choice uh, mechanism wrong when the government's designing it ends up screwing up the entire market. So let's get to some of the legitimate disagreements we can have here, and maybe this could help inform congressional staff or people working on this bill to make improvements. So you you said something up top that's really important, right? That it's already an opt-in situation if a, a ISP was to do something like sell your browser history. And that whole hysteria uh, that happened a few months ago was based on a lot of false information. And you had people writing articles like, no, you can't sell browser history. But there are certain things that already opt-in and what are those things? What are those things we already agree that the FTC's already said that, look, in this case, the information is too sensitive, it's too important, that we're going to have to get the consumer to agree? So, for example, the, the bill lists categories of sensitive information. One of those is social security numbers. Everyone agrees on that. Yeah, I mean, come on. Everyone also agrees that some kinds of financial information 
are sensitive, right? Bank account information, but not just that. There are all sorts of things that you might provide that, for example, could make you vulnerable to identity theft, okay? Everyone agrees on that. The problem is the bill, instead of saying uh, what the FTC does, which is, well, it depends on context and we, we'll figure it out as we go. The current framework. The current framework. The bill instead just says financial information, health information. And that has the perverse consequence of then treating things like, well, you've been to uh, LendingTree.com. That's not sensitive financial information in the way that the information you might upload for a loan application is sensitive financial information. Yeah, there's no distinction between I visited a website that deals with health or finance versus I've actually uploaded personal information about my health and finances. Just just for example, and and, and the... It's difficult to even to begin to explore the many examples that get swept into this. And the legislation does not have these distinctions, right? That's part no, of the problem. No, because it, it, it attempts to make this all really simple and to just say, okay, clean, bright line rules. But clean, bright line rules here don't really work, right? What we need is flexibility and nuance. And so here, I think it's fair to say that this bill is actually far more restrictive than not only the current approach, but more restrictive than what the Obama administration proposed when they had legislation back in, in 2015, and then what the Europeans proposed. And, and in some ways it's more restrictive, in other ways less. So those frameworks, in addition to having notice and choice at their core, that opt-in, opt-out requirement, they also had a bunch of other prescriptive requirements like data minimization, you have to do X, Y, and Z. This bill, I'm sure some of its defenders will say, and also some critics from the left will say, well, it leaves all of those things out. And it just talks about notice and choice, which, again, some people might think is good. Some people might think is not enough. But in fact, if you look at the bill carefully, actually, it does build in a lot of those other concepts by saying, if you don't do enough of X or Y, then you have to get opt-in. And the best example I would give you of this is the definition of covered personal information is, is things that are about that user or that are reasonably linkable to that user. And that term comes directly from the FTC's uh, privacy report from 2012. That was the single most commented upon topic when the FTC drew comments. And you saw companies like Netflix, companies all across the the tech ecosystem who said, whoa, hold on. I mean, this, this, you have to give us some some guidance about what is reasonable because we we need to know that we, we, we have an incentive to do enough to say, okay, this data which we want to retain to make our service better. Right? Yeah, that's, that's like how, your suggestions. Like Netflix says, you might like this show. Bingo. Amazon says, you bought this, you might like this. What, what that requires is doing some amount of de-identification to take individual user logs and turn them into a larger pool of information from which you can deduce correlation. Now, Marsha Blackburn herself actually gets that in a way more than any other member of Congress. If you rewind back to 2011, 2013, she was saying things like, Data is a natural resource. Yeah, it's the lifeblood of a thriving internet economy. Bingo. And that's what she was talking about. Now, the problem is, I don't think, it's not obvious exactly how a bill like this uh, restricts the use of that information, but it does when you start to think it through. And, and, and the critical thing to here to understand is the FTC's approach saying reasonably linkable and how uh, on a high level that was defined, which basically all just came back down to reasonableness. Well, even that, in my opinion, was far too open-ended. It was not good enough for companies like Netflix because that analysis really has to be grounded on some level in economics. We want to focus on things where there's an incentive to, to re-identify, you know, to hack you or steal your identity, and where the costs of re-identification would be fairly low. That, that's something that should be treated as, as sensitive 
information potentially. So not only does the FTC's approach bill uh, not do that, the bill doesn't do it either. And, and this is just an example of something subtle, but if you take a term like reasonably identifiable from the report and then you transport that into statute, you actually change what it means. Because when the FTC apl applies that term, they have to ground it in the underlying standard of, of Section 5, which is economic analysis cost-benefit. When you take that term and put it into statute, you break that link. And so Congress needs to actually say here explicitly that reasonable re uh, relinkability is really an economic question. So you've raised an important point or just about how the FTC works. And you've mentioned that Marsha Blackburn gets this stuff, right? And maybe this bill isn't perfect, but it'd be hard to say that she wants to destroy the internet economy. I mean, in 2013, a Blackburn staffer said, government rushing in to set regulation could have a negative impact. If we don't work with industry to learn about issues and the practical uses of tech and innovation, we take a humble approach. So she would say, you know, we'll pass this bill and the parade of horribles that you just outlined will not happen just because, right? Because maybe the chair happens to be Maureen Olhausen who believes in regulatory humility. But isn't one of the issues here is that it, there's ambiguity and you're leaving it up to the mercy of the FTC chair, whoever that person is, whatever party they happen to be from, you could have a humble approach, which doesn't destroy the internet economy, but you could have one that does. I mean, is that part of the issue here is that it just leaves it up to the regulator and yeah. that Congress is trying with this bill to be clear, but this bill was rushed? Well, there's a central irony here. So one of the things that Marsh has always fought against is giving the FTC new grants of rulemaking authority. Yeah, from a conservative perspective, you don't, you r rarely see Republicans trying to give more authority to regulators. Right. But what, what I think is harder to understand is that having a bunch of undefined terms in statute and then just letting the agency figure those out case by case can be much worse because the agency gets discretion and sometimes that might go well and sometimes not. And we've seen the FTC has spent 16 years out there uh, trying to decide what is reasonable data security and is only now finally litigating about that in the LabMD case. And that just illustrates why it's important if Congress is gonna come in here to give some meaning to terms like that so what we need in general here is a more nuanced bill, right? It needs to take account of context. It needs to weigh costs and benefits. It needs to build those standards in. It can't just dump all of those things on the agency and trust that they'll get it right. And one of the problems with this bill is also that it uh, preempts state regulation. And that's not to say that having a 50 state patchwork of privacy regulation is a good thing. But there's government surveillance privacy policy, there's consumer privacy policy, and you could see criticisms from both the left and the right here because some states are controlled by Democrats, some by Republicans. They're basically saying, hey, I've got a Republican lawmaker who should believe in federalism and states' rights introducing a bill that nullifies my privacy bills in my state and my data breach laws. Yeah, so the, this is a um, little bit of a surprising point. So the, we've been waiting since you know, 1986 to reform the Federal Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Yeah, we talked about that on the show, ECPA. Which governs not only law enforcement access to data, but also how companies can provide access to third parties. And long story short, a bunch of states have passed their own mini ECPA reform bills that require a warrant for government, right? Yeah. That's good. Basic all, constitutional stuff like warrant for email. Right. And so Tech Freedom has been working on that because legislation has been stalled in Congress, even though it passed last year with, I think it was, it was essentially unanimous House vote, which yeah. is unheard of. Yeah, they don't agree what day it is. The problem is the preemption provision in this bill 
would effectively preempt those laws as well. Yeah, and those states are basically pushing the federal government in a positive direction from a privacy standpoint. If you if you don't have good federal privacy protection, we'd have big states like California, New York, and others considering good privacy protection. It kind of creates a a mechanism to pressure the federal government, and this bill would just nullify that, whether it's a bad privacy bill or a good privacy bill. Now, Baron, I don't want to spend the whole show criticizing this bill because we're really only talking about one section of it. What does this bill get right? What do we like about it? Well, it does get some important things right. So, for example, the Federal Trade Commission should be the nation's consumer protection regulator and and de facto uh, data protection authority, what the Europeans would say, right? And that means it should have general jurisdiction. It should have jurisdiction over broadband providers, even if the, right, so right now, remember that broadband lives over at the FCC. It has since 2012, when the FCC said it was a common carrier service subject to Title II. Sorry, 2015, yeah. 2015, excuse me. That is about to be reversed. The FCC is proposed to uh, undo that, say it's not a common carrier service, and hand the issue back to the Federal Trade Commission. But a Democratic FCC, if there isn't legislation, will just reverse that decision. Yeah, and telecom then, ping pong. Right. So this bill would at least solve part of that problem by saying, whatever that ping pong looks like, yeah. the FTC is still the privacy cop on the beat, even if the FCC also claims some jurisdiction over broadband providers. Yeah, and that's there's bipartisan agreement that if you're going to have an expert agency that deals with data protection for 20 years, and then you have one agency take away the jurisdiction, and then you have the next agency give it back. I mean, regardless of what happens, you want the expert regulator on the beat and FCC politics shouldn't get in the way of that. Uh, Baron, uh, I know you have to run. So um, is there anything else that you'd like to say about this bill before we sign off? Well, in some ways, the worst thing about the bill is the the fact that um, for, for as much as we talk about free market transactions and, and Marsha claims to be, you know, big free market champion, uh, this bill actually bars users from making these trade-offs. In other words, it says uh, if a if a site asks for data, needs it to provide the service, needs it to, to provide advertising, and a user says, no, I'm not going to give it to you, the site still has to provide that service. Wait, so you're telling me that when I talked about the whole free thing earlier in the show, where like because you get to use Facebook and Google for free, you're implicitly agreeing to this data collection. Well, not implicitly, you actually say yes to a thing that no matter what now, I still get to use that yeah. service for free, but they can't collect my data. So what effect would that have on the marketplace well, if you have a bunch of freeloaders? Well, so first of all, the bill is effectively legalizing uh, piracy of ad-supported content, which is just crazy given that Marsha has been the biggest supporter in Congress of, of copyrights, right? And biggest critic of, of copyright piracy. So the obvious consequence of this is, is content moves to a paywall. It's, just, it's not hard to figure this out, but it, this is also an example of something that, yeah, you can take this out of the bill, uh, and, and other past Republican bills have said exactly the opposite of this, that of course you have to be able to condition access to content on that quid pro quo. Yeah, It's still not going to fix the basic problems of the bill. You're still going to be pushing people to collect websites to collect more information and driving them towards uh, a, a paywall. And I don't want to get too much into this because it's mostly speculative, but there are politics at play here. This bill didn't just appear in a vacuum. Um, Representative Blackburn's been getting a lot of heat for the broadband privacy CRA, which, I mean, if you remember all those it's crazy Congressional articles. Congressional Review Act. Yeah, if you remember all those crazy articles about, oh my God, they're getting rid of internet privacy. Basically, all that was, was they had, the FCC was going to require opt-in only for ISPs, not for the edge. 
uh, the Congress said, that's not fair. You can't have asymmetrical regulation. We're going to remove the opt-in for ISPs. And everyone freaked out. And Fight for the Future, which is a left-wing activist group, has been actually running billboards in Representative Blackburn's district saying, like, this is the person who sold all your data to the highest bidder, right? So just to say, Republicans took a lot of flack for that privacy thing. We tried our best to explain the nuances. And this might be a political response to the pressure. And maybe there's an opportunity for groups like Tech Freedom and others to work with the committee to try to improve the bill so that we can get a better product. Yeah, I will just highlight, though, that I don't think this is just politics. Uh, there's a reason that that they targeted Marsha that has more to do with the, the, than that she's just the, the chairman of the subcommittee. And there's a reason that she came up with this bill that, that, is, that is genuine and sincere, which is she and many people, uh, many conservatives, really only think of this issue in property rights terms. And if you start from that premise, you're going to wind up with something roughly like this. You're going to say, well, let's just make sure people opt in and, and opt out. And, and the central point that we have to get across here is despite being advocates of property rights in general, the property model just just breaks down on the internet, right? You, 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 you don't actually end up empowering users. You end up hurting them. You end up having more information collected, driving people towards paywalls. You have to instead really focus on context and making sure that users are choosing about the things that are really important. That's what the FTC has been doing. That's what Congress should make sure happens in a, in a better and smarter way. Well, we'll leave it there. That was a very interesting discussion of a complicated topic, and I hope you listeners got the basics. Um, we'll definitely be following up with um, some written content as well, so look out for that. And, and in particular, we'll put this in the show notes, but the single best piece to read on this is a piece called Opt-in Dystopias that really explores, just from a user experience perspective, why opt-ins end up backfiring. Well, Baron, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Find this podcast in the iTunes store where you can leave us a review, and we will use that review to target ads to you and sell it to the highest bidder and steal your identity. Uh, just kidding. But please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.